Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today I want to devote myself to the work of the late great feminist writer Andrea Dworkin, a gifted polemicist and then some uh, with a mighty pen. I think what I want to do today, um, I've talked so much about her background and her recent death, I believe she was in her late 50s, uh, I think the thing to do to introduce you to Andrea Dworkin, if you're unfamiliar with her work, is to pull out a little book. I'm not even sure it's still in print. It's called The New Woman's Broken Heart. And it was first published in 1975. That's 30 years ago. My gosh. Um, little bits of it. Yes, it's a, a collage, a collection of prose fragments, let's see, the simple story of a lesbian girlhood, and then Bertha Schneider's existential edge, and so many of the little bits and pieces were published here and there, and she's collected them all. This book was published by um, Frog in the Well Press. Interesting, interesting stuff. Um, the epic graph at the beginning of this book comes from Colette's book, Claudine and Annie, and it reads, No, Claudine, I do not shudder. All that is life, time flowing on, the hoped-for miracle that may lie round the next bend of the road, it is because of my faith in that miracle that I am escaping. Of course, um, Andrea Dworkin did not escape, and uh, uh, her loss was great. Um, It is my general impression that she was pretty well done in, done in by the world and uh, its condemnation of her and her works. But I will argue about that some other time. Let us just go right to um, this tale. Let's see. (laughs) This is the one, yes. This is the chapter on, what is this chapter? The Awful Facts, recounted by Bertha Schneider. She calls herself uh, Bertha Schneider in this book. Yes. And it is, of course, autobiographical, but it is also, uh, I would say, uh, what is that? Uh, Wildly, just wildly, uh, symbolic and her analogies are fantastic. Uh, I really wish I did know what the relationship with Warren Beatty was all about, but that's just because <laughs> gossip is such fun. Never mind. <laughs> 
Um, as I said, Andrea Dworkin uses the persona of Bertha Schneider. And she writes, Bertha had never had any money to speak of, but her friends had been pure gold, the best of every generation, the ones who stopped wars, the ones who wrote the poems of their time, the ones who held hands and treasured single daffodils while decadence raged all around, the ones who were not waxen and false, the ones all those others could not destroy, the ones police could not police, corruption could not corrupt, bitterness could not embitter, the ones on whose hands dirt was clay, not mud. But in her thirtieth year, God had struck again. She had fallen from grace, which is something like doing a somersault and missing the floor. She kept falling and falling and falling until she lost even the memory of solid ground. Bertha had learned a few things in life, exactly three. One, every up is followed by a down. Two, every down is followed by an up. But you have to live long enough, which, depending on how down the down is, can be tough and is not a foregone conclusion. Three, disembodied wisdom is the only lover who doesn't get seasick on the curves and take the easy way out. Bertha had courted disembodied wisdom assiduously. Disembodied wisdom, not nearly as formidable as it is cracked up to be, had given in. Lured, perhaps, by the rhythmic certainty of Bertha's tragic sense of life. Bertha had had, to be frank, carnal knowledge. Like light through a window pane, Bertha, pregnant from the Union, had given birth in a profane world where um, dog S and the urine of drunks and junkies were the only available sacraments now blooded from delivering the divine fruits of her unique fornications to a fairly indifferent world. I have a footnote here, people. Um, when I come across a word which is not allowed by the FCC, I will either use the first letter of that word or a simple euphemism as in fornications for the F word. I don't think that... Um, uh, in this day and age, well, uh, Andrea Dworkin always said what she meant. Um, she didn't use euphemisms. In any case, Bertha looked around for that one lover, detached enough not to run. Disembodied wisdom had fled, just as Warren Beatty might have, lost like light through a window pane. Lovers, friends, dust unto dust. Dust clings. Bertha sneezes. Dust doesn't take kindly to sneeze. Dust scatters. Bertha calls after it. Dust, what can it answer? The others are dust, and what is Bertha? More dust. But Bertha doesn't trust dust. She knows herself. She knows the others. Chaos, craving. Dust has its own laws. Dust is inconstant. Dust hurts the eyes. 
dust can sweep up in huge gusts, suffocate inside the nostrils, blinding the eyes, choking the throat. Dust pretends it will cling forever. But Bertha knows it does or it doesn't either way. Once dust touches dust, the spot is marked. Loving, needing, or wanting dust is a waste of time, especially for dust. Even a legal purist like Bertha resents it. Bertha understands dust, but wishes she were not of it. She is tired of dust clinging, and she is tired of dust scattering, and she is tired of dust coming at her in terrible storms, and she is tired of being made of a substance so ultimately ridiculous, something so substantial and so insubstantial at the same time, something that passes through one's fingers which are dust, like dust. Bertha longs for the only lover she has ever trusted, disembodied wisdom, but it is gone, strongly reminding her of dust. Maybe whatever dust touches turns to dust. Bertha had what was, from her point of view, a reliable common-sense perspective. All loss was measured against atrocity. She was poor, but bones she was not. Her gums were getting soft and squishy from malnutrition, but live she would. She had no chair to sit in, which led to constant backache, and she slept on the floor, which led to constant colds in her bladder. Uh, but she wasn't pressed up straight, essing in her pants in a cattle car on the way to Dachau. She had been raped and was still haunted by fear and humiliation. But she had not also had cholera at the same time. She had fornicated for money, been destitute on street corners, underdressed in freezing winter. But hunger had not reduced her to eating rats. She had to endure and continued to endure real hardship. But she would probably live long enough just one more month to turn 31. This was not stupid of Bertha. In America, with a K, in America, such measuring was called paranoia by liberal psychiatrists. It was called survivor's guilt. But Bertha, with her European sensibility, knew that she was a realist. She had a very cogent understanding of history. She didn't imagine that she could survive atrocity, but she prepared for it by constant concentration on what it would require of her. Unlike her contemporaries, she believed that normalcy differed from atrocity, only in degree, not in kind. It was possible, Bertha knew, that she might not survive normalcy either harassed as she was by its unambiguous cruelty. Every day of loss and more loss encouraged Bertha to wonder, will I live longer than this terrible time which is, on the grand scale, not terrible enough to justify capitulation? Tired, she measured her fatigue against the unspeakable exhaustion of her own relatives 
who had survived the Nazi death camps. They had not dropped dead of their own accord, a fact that provided an eloquent rule of thumb, Bertha saw loss, all loss. From this unyielding perspective, this method of measurement was the discipline by which she maintained an optimistic belief in the likelihood that she too might endure. For this reason, when despair gnawed, she did not welcome it, or romanticize it, or enjoy it. Self-pity made her sicker than deprivation, and for this reason, when lovers left her all the while, hurling foul epithets, or when friends fell away like diseased flies, she did not cry. She might well feel sorrow, but tears had to be reserved for disasters that made tears run dry. Her attitude was unfashionable in a world in which acne occasioned more sympathy than starvation. Her own pimples, and the pimples of others, did not move Bertha, and so others, comfortable in excessive emotional upheaval, saw her as cold and rigid. She saw them as silly and vain. Bertha did not share the common emotional preoccupations of her time. Then this new cycle of loss came, overabundant, overwhelming, and leveled her out flat. She could not bear it no matter what comparisons she made. At first she held on. At first she would have settled for fish and eggs and milk, a chair to sit on, some money in the bank, and sleep every night, uh, sleep in which loss left her alone. She bartered then, bartered with God the loan shark. Time went on and Bertha was dragged out flatter and flatter until the nerve that was pure greed was stretched out onto the surface of her skin, exposed, raw, naked, jagged, ragingly sore. Detachment was lost, discipline was lost. Bertha cursed disembodied wisdom as the seducer and abandoner who had passed her on to a terrible new master, pure greed herself turned inside out. She wanted purple velvet curtains, a red velvet couch in which she would be happy to lie forever and die, fresh crab and vulgar lobster, and women, the bodies of women, pure taste and touch, and no tomorrows, not like the men, not to prove or to have, but each sensation for its own sake, each sensation the whole of life, so that greed would wipe out deprivation. Ah, oh, erase, erase deprivation and the memory of it, each time the impossible. Forever her heart had become hungry, ravenous, but cursed with the love of meaning, which she could not lose no matter how hard she tried. Lust made her sad. Her own lust struck her dumb with grief, because if dust always reduced to lust, loss 
had triumphed. Bertha was lost. The crime was the punishment. Lust was dust. Still nothing worth a tear. Time passed, seasons changed, lilacs came and went, roses were born and died, leaves turned burgundy and orange, then fell, burying the cement and earth, then froze under the first snow. Bertha stared, Bertha stirred, Bertha walked, Bertha sat, Bertha turned restlessly night after night. Bertha buried herself in dust. She dusted herself. She covered herself with dust, sneezed it, snorted it, spit it out. The dust spit right back. The dust flew by, looking the other way. Sweat made dust sticky, turned it salty or sweet or bitter. The wind blew it away. Rain washed it away. The snow froze it into slicing slivers. Dust she was, and dust she always would be. Philosophically aside, sad dust, greedy dust, slightly silly dust, dust enchanted by dust, dust cast into the air by a sigh, landing or not landing, depending on whether. Or whether. Those are the two spellings. Yes, depending on the weather, that is W E A T H E R, or the weather, as in whether or not, whether or not, whether or not, folks. Yes, indeed. I'm going to go back to the beginning of this collection of prose fragments. I'm reading to you from Andrea Dworkin's very personal little book called "The New Woman's Broken Heart" from. Frog in the Well Press. I think it's probably out of print. Of course, Andrea Dworkin is famous for her great tomes, her non-fiction reports of, uh, oh, let's just say, uh, let's just say, the war against women, the war on women. Uh, was it some some reporter once asked her why? She was so angry, or what it was that、uh, so disturbed her about the、uh, the gender gap, and she said that's not it. She obviously has been in love with men all her life. If you read her carefully, what、um, uh, what she writes about is what men do. Of course, they often do that to women, as I'm fond of saying. The battle for men's minds is often fought on the field of women's bodies. Anyway, here is a a、uh, prose piece titled "Bertha Schneider's Existential Edge." Andrea Dworkin uses the persona of Bertha Schneider. <laughs> She writes, "First, I gave up men. It wasn't easy, but it sure as hell was obvious. You may want to know, woman to woman, what it was that made me decide. Well, it wasn't the times I was raped by strangers. I mean, Christ, you do the whole trip then—nightmares, cold sweats, fear and trembling, and not inconsiderable amount of loathing as well. But one thing you can't do is take it personally. I mean, 
I always figured that statistically at least it had nothing to do with me, Bertha Schneider. Now, the two I knew a little bit, that was different. I mean, I felt there was something personal in it. The man from Rand, that well-mannered smartass, and some starving painter who limped, for Christ's sakes. I mean, I figure I must have asked for it. I mean, I'm always reading that I must have asked for it, and in the movies, women always do, and they're always glad. I wasn't glad, goddammit, but who'd believe it anyway? The painter told me that if I didn't want it, my sea wouldn't would have been locked and no man could have penetrated it. I told him I wasn't a yoga, though I was uh, seeing the value of all that uh, oriental S for the first time. I figure that's why there aren't too many women yogas in India. <laughs> they don't want them locking their seas, which is obviously the first thing they would do. It wasn't even being married for three years. It wasn't the time he kept banging my head on the kitchen floor hardwood. So that I would say, I really did like the movie after all. I mean, let's face it, I just didn't like Clint Eastwood. And if that's a fatal flaw, well, it just is. It wasn't the time he beat me up in front of my mother either. It wasn't the time he threw me out on the street in my nightgown and called the police. It wasn't even the time he brought home four drunken friends, one of whom kept calling me Kike. They tied me to the bed, and I have to edit this passage because the FCC doesn't allow us to um, say certain things on the air. Anyway, I passed out, and thank God I don't know what happened after that. After all, that was only four events in three years, which is 1,095 days. Besides, I loved him. And besides, I didn't have anywhere else to go. I never exactly made a grand exit. I mean, I could have, for instance... Uh, I could have run away with another man. Would have been a grand exit. It also would have required presence of mind and a basically unbruised body. I could have changed the locks, gotten a court order, except, frankly, and I know this for a fact, no one would have believed me. I know that that's true from the time I went to a doctor after he bashed my head against the kitchen floor. I was, I admit, hysterical while I kept trying trying to explain to the doctor was that if someone had bashed his head, his head, the doctor's head, against a hardwood kitchen floor because he didn't like Clint Eastwood, well, he would be hysterical too. My fatal flaw was not regarded kindly by him either. He told me that they could have me locked up or I could go home. And then he gave me some Valium. I considered it, but I guess I was more afraid of the nuthouse than I was of being beaten to death. Anyway, finally, two events led to my final departure. First, I went shopping, and he tried to run me over with his car. The police came at that point. He'd gotten out of the car after backing me against a wall and was strangling me and screaming obscenities simultaneously, so... Anyway, I refused to press charges. I kept thinking that he was confused. He'd made a mistake. I thought that every time, which, for an educated woman, was quite an accomplishment. Then I went home and cried and told him I loved him and would do anything for him. And again, I have to cut something here because, once again, the FCC doesn't allow us to say what is written. Anyway, she made dinner, and the next day I got a stomach virus. And had terrible diarrhea and vomiting, and when I asked him to drive me to the doctor, he kicked me in the leg midway between the knee and the ankle. The kick sent me flying across the room, whereupon 
I hit my shoulder against the wall. He went back to sleep, and I asked in my pants. I lay there for a long time. I did finally get up. I limped, dripping ass into the sunset. I never did get revenge or anything like that. His new girlfriend moved in with him right away. I had provoked him, she said, which for an educated woman was quite an accomplishment. He got tearful whenever he saw me on the street and asked, Bertha, why did you leave me? That is, until our day in court. On that day, he beat me up, called me a whore, and told me that he always finished what he started. <laughs> so, I have to round for a while after I left. In fact, I was one big F around. I had that look men love. Utterly used. I had that uh, posture that men lust after. Flat on my back. Also, I was poor and usually hungry, and effing was the only way I knew to get a meal. I didn't actually decide to give up men until almost a year and a half later. I took a lot of acid, and on those nights, or even on afternoons, looking into the void, which was located precisely between my legs, I would simply shake and tremble for eight hours or twelve hours or... However long the acid lasted, I would just shake and tremble. I also had nightmares. Somehow all the feelings I didn't feel when each thing had actually happened to me, I did feel when I slept. So I hated going to sleep because then I had to feel. I felt him hit me and I felt what it felt like and Christ, it felt awful, and I would sleep sometimes with my eyes open, and I would feel it all over, and most of it for the first time. I didn't understand how I had not felt it when it was happening, but I hadn't. I had felt something else. I had felt almost nothing, which was something else. When I was sleeping, each thing would happen to me as it had happened, and I would feel what I had not felt. And then I began to feel it when I was awake. Then I decided that though I might never feel better, I didn't want to feel worse. And that was my decision to give up men. Women were the next to go. Now that may sound a little nutty. Since I'm nuts about women, it all began when I was very young, 13 to be exact. I had many an amorous night well into adulthood and even past it. <laughs> Sometimes when he beat me up, I went to my next-door neighbor, who comforted me kindly with orgasm after orgasm, but I couldn't stay there or think anything through because she was married to a man she hated, and he was usually there. There didn't seem to be any rest or happiness anywhere in those troubled times. To tell the truth, I gave up women after some very bitter, sweet love affairs, which got effed up because I was still effing men and was still very effed up by men. I was, to tell the truth, <laughs> one running, festering sore, and I didn't do anyone much good. A lot of women were good to me, and I effed them over time because I couldn't seem to get anything straight. Finally, I figured that since I couldn't do anyone any good, I might at least stop doing monumental harm. Little boys were the last to go, 18, 19, 20. Not prepubescent, certainly not. All long and gangly and awkward and ignorant. They never beat me up, but 
They didn't stay hard long either. Soon I came to appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that that was some sort of good faith. Finally, it hardly seemed worth the effort. So now I was in what all those men writers call, quote, an existential position. Now, contrary to the lewd images that might be evoked because I'm a woman, that position is when you've given up everything you've ever tried. <laughs> in my case, being quite taken up with the arts, um, which included having mustard rubbed into whip wounds, yes, <laughs> I have to stop here. There's a wonderful passage about uh, Henry Miller and Norman Mailer and about <laughs> being being licked clean by a horde of Soho painters. Um, never mind. This is a wonderful, a wonderful little personal cockeyed book about Bertha Schneider's existential edge. And it's the writing of Andrea Dworkin, whom we lost this year. Um, she was too young to die. And she had a rough life. Uh, yes, she writes it began quite possibly with Nancy Drew. This book is from the Frog in the Well Press. It's the new woman's broken heart. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Haiti, breaking the shackles. This is a benefit for Haiti Action Committee and South Alameda County Peace and Justice Commission. Learn about the role of the U.S. and other governments, as well as the U.N., in subverting democracy and installing a brutal regime, and how Haitians are resisting oppression.